Titus chapter 1. Go ahead and find your place there. Boys and girls are dismissed out for Children's Church now. If you haven't been dismissed, uh, you can head on out there this morning. Titus, Titus chapter 1, and uh, we are continuing our series this morning, looking forward to uh, what the Lord has in store for us. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever walked into another room of your house and somebody in your family uh, was watching a show on TV, maybe a movie or uh, TV or, or something like that, but you walk in and you, you kind of find yourself halfway in uh, to the movie and, and, and you sit down and, and you start uh, wanting to watch and you're intrigued by what you hear, but uh, you start asking someone in your family all these questions. You say, wait, 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 who is that? Wait, 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 what does that mean? Wait, 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 I don't understand. And, and probably after like the seventh or eighth question, they went ahead and pressed pause on the TV and uh, gave you the 30-second synopsis to catch you up to seat. How, how many of you have been there before? Can I see your hand? All right. So uh, because you felt like that in the past, I certainly do not want that to be the situation that you find yourself in here uh, with the sermon this morning. Uh, if you were not with us last week, then you are really missing the first part of the sermon. And uh, whenever that happens uh, on the podcast, and we have a two-part thing on the podcast, I'm, I'm glad that I can say something like this. Hey, just press pause right here, uh, go back, listen to the earlier recording, and then come back and rejoin us for the conversation. Except for the problem is, you can't do that, all right? And so for those of you who were not here last Sunday, let me just kind of grab the remote, press pause, and then talk to you a little bit, bringing you up to speed of what we talked about last week. Where we were last week was we were in Titus chapter 1 as we have been considering the book of Titus. Uh, we have been considering a portrait of a healthy church. And the book, about, and the book of Titus really is unpacking for each one of us uh, what the Bible says concerning how the church of God is to be structured, how the church of God is to be led. And uh, as we've been in the series last week, we talked about that a healthy church will be sustained by healthy leaders. The New Testament bears this out. If you have any questions, just look at some of the other New Testament letters, look at the book of Acts, and what you'll find is that a properly ordered assembly of God's people will be a place that is overseen and led by spiritual leaders. And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus, his son in the faith. He is writing in chapter four, 1, beginning in verse 4, Titus, my true son in a common faith. And so Titus here, uh, Paul is writing to Titus to challenge him and to encourage him about who the church is to be, what they are to look like. And so Paul, if you look down at your Bible, you can see in verse 5, Paul gives him this statement. He says, this, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so last week, the thought for the message was setting things in order. And we talked about how that a church that is a healthy New Testament church will be marked by two things. It will have an established order and it will have qualified leaders. And Paul said that the situation in Crete where Titus was at was lacking both of those things. And there were some things within those network of churches that were needing to be ironed out. They were needing to be straightened out. And so what we really talked about last week, for those of you who weren't here, was that the New Testament talks about two 
offices of leadership within the church. There is the office of a pastor or elder or bishop, and then there's the office of a deacon. And, and, and here in chapter 1 of the book of Titus is qualifications and describing the need for elders, that office of a pastor, elder, bishop. And we discovered last week that all three of those words are used in the New Testament interchangeably uh, to talk about the responsibility of a shepherd, of a pastor. And so we, we, we considered that um, in Acts 20 that all three of those things together look like this. They refer to a man who possesses a spiritual maturity exercising a God-given spiritual authority with specific responsibilities of that of a shepherd. And so really the word pastor or shepherd it really connotates what an elder should do. What does an elder do? They, they, they care for the flock of God. They lead the flock of God. They uh, protect and they, they have all of these functions. And who made them overseers? We asked that question last week and we discovered that it's the Spirit of God. Uh, if you look at the book of Acts, you'll find on a number of different occasions, like in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so we talked about last week as well that, that these elders in a church are divinely appointed by the Spirit of God. And so when you open your Bible and you say, well, wait a minute, I wonder how they did it in the early church. What you discover is that the practice of the early church is this, that those who served in leadership of Christ's church as these elders, pastors, and bishops, how did they do that? They were appointed very clearly by the Spirit of God they were, and, and, and they were appointed into the life of these churches by the Spirit of God in the accompaniment with the prayer and fasting of God's people and that when those things came together, the church appointed individuals for leadership and the church commissioned them out in its service. So that's where we've been. If you missed it last week, I'm going to grab the remote and we'll unpress pause because we were right in the middle of the sermon when I just told you I have five more pages of notes and you all have been gracious uh, to listen 10 or 15 minutes past when I normally end, all right? And so this morning, I want to tell you, I, I hope it'll be different than last Sunday in that we'll get through the message. Um, but I'm, I'm telling you, the more I study this week, the more I'm like, man, I sure don't hope I don't have to press pause a second Sunday, all right? So here's what I need you to do. I need you to buckle up this morning, all right? I need you to put your thinking cap on. I want us to consider really a large section of verses, but they, they all are interrelated and they all are really emphasizing two specific things. They're talking about this. The verses we're going to look at this morning is this. They're talking about how elders bring order to a church. And if you have your Bible, I, I trust you do. Would you stand with me this morning as we read from Scripture beginning in verse 5? of chapter 1 of the book of Titus, and we'll read all the way down through verse 16. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent for greedy gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and 
rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both by their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for every good work. If you're taking notes this morning, the thought of the message is simply this. The necessity for qualified elders. The necessity for qualified elders. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word of God. We're thankful, Lord, that it is your scriptures that inform our thinkings. We're thankful, Lord, this morning that we do not have to be asking questions as to, Lord, what leadership in your church should look like. But we're so thankful, Lord, that you have given us your word to show us and to tell us. And Lord, most importantly, you've modeled it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, this morning as we come into this time, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill this place this morning by your spirit. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so filled with the spirit of God that we might uh, hear what you're saying. Lord, that we would see ways, specific ways, that this should be applied into the life of this church. And Lord, we pray this morning for the evil one, that God, you would keep him at bay. We pray this morning that we would remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we pray this morning that all of our thoughts, our attention, Lord, would be directed to your word. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Everyone said, amen. You can be seated. So we're talking about the necessity for qualified elders. Notice in verse 5, Paul tells Titus, Hey, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. As if he really had a question. He knew this. Paul had told him that. But remember, Titus is not just a personal letter. It's a public letter. And Paul was reminding Titus that as this letter would be read in the churches, that the churches as well would be rightly informed as to what Titus was there for. Paul tells him he is to put what remained into order, and he is to establish elders in every town. And and those things are directly linked together. They are separate, but they are connected. And so this morning, we're considering the necessity for qualified elders, and we're asking the question in uh, chapter 1, the overarching question is this, how do these elders in a local church bring order to that church? And so I want you to follow along with me in your Bible. Notice in verse 5, Paul says, appoint elders in every town, really in in every city. And so if you were to think for a second of the responsibility that Titus has in front of him, you remember he is there on the island of Crete. This is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea, over 3,200 square miles. And, And historians tell us that in first century, Crete was known for these city state divisions. And that at the time that Paul would be writing this, there would be over 20 different cities on the island. And so when you think about Paul telling Titus to appoint elders in every town, uh, think about it, at least 20, maybe more uh, local uh, congregations, uh, communities 
that Titus is to go into, that he is to help establish order and to and appoint these elders. And I mean, just think about the challenges for a second. Think about what he was up against. Uh, think about being in first century with limited transportation and no technology. And, and, and you're trying to cover 3,200 square miles of an island and you're just trying to first navigate to find the cities and then you're trying to find the churches within those communities and you're trying to figure out who's the leadership in those churches and then ensuring that it all falls in line with the word of God of what God has called for his church to be. And so, I mean, Titus was going on some pretty rugged islandy tran- terrain uh, crossing some mountainous regions. I mean, he had a lot up against him to go to these local congregations of house churches, many with would be no more than maybe just a large group meeting in a home. And Titus' whole purpose there on this island is to appoint these elders. And remember last week we talked about that the appointment of elders is at the end of a process. And so Titus would have had a whole bunch of other work to get to this point of even appointing these elders in these churches. Because think about the tremendous challenge. He's going into these remote places on the island to establish the right kind of leadership. And in addition to all the challenges that he had in the first century, uh, he sure couldn't ring up the First Baptist Theological Seminary of Jerusalem and say, hey, I'm in need of 40 of your recent graduates. Can you please send them to the island of Crete to be elders, right? I mean, could he have done that? No. So then you're asking the question, where? Where are these elders going to come from? Someone tell me, where are they going to come from? Where are they going to come from? From Crete itself. They're going to come from these communities within Crete itself that you understand there would have been this process of of Titus um, not just appointing these individuals to places of service, but developing them from within their own community to be the kind of people that God would have to lead his church. And so as we're thinking about the necessity for elders, let me give you two big points that will guide our thoughts this morning. First, notice the problem. Notice the problem. Notice verse 10 through 16, we see a problem. This is what the situation required. Paul says in verse 5, I put you in Crete that you may put what remained into order. You see, Titus was really facing some of the same challenges that his other co-labor in the gospel, Timothy, was facing in Ephesus. Both of these pastors were being called into churches to do this, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul told Timothy in his letter, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. What are you to do, Timothy? Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so that is the exact same situation that Titus is facing here in Crete. He's dealing with people who have itching ears that are wandering off from the truth of the gospel into these other things. And he's going into these house churches with already somewhat pre-established leadership, except for here's the problem. Not everybody who is leading in those assemblies were rightly qualified to be leading in those assemblies. 
And, and it was creating an issue for the church. Why? Because there were leaders who were really like wolves in sheep clothing. They were teaching a muddled truth. They, they, they were teaching an aspect of the gospel, but it was laden and mixed in with Jewish legalism. It was mixed in with man-made traditions. It was mixed in with what we see in chapter 1, this element of mysticism. And this shouldn't be a surprise for the church. Hear me, it should never be a surprise from the church when the church faces false teaching. Paul told the Ephesian elders as he gathered them together in the book of Acts, he says, and know this, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. I love how one pastor put it. He says, these false teachers were whispering carefully crafted messages and sewing threads of truth in a fabric of deceit. So what do we do when false teachers enter the church? You say, Pastor, that's first century. That doesn't happen anymore. I don't remember the last time I saw so-and-so came in with a big name tag that said, false teacher. I mean, I think that's some of us. We grew up in Christian circles. Like, we think that these guys... They were known by being called false teacher. Hello, my name is false teacher. That, that is not how it happened. But they were teaching something false. They were spreading something false. Here's the thing. We're living today in an age of tolerance. I don't have to tell you that. It's impolite to tell someone they're wrong. And although everybody in our society, which we live in a society where everybody's entitled to their own opinion, sadly, what's happened in many times in the church of God and in other places is that opinions, as in culture, become elevated to the point of truth. And isn't that the challenge that we see in our society today? That everybody has their own truth. Have you heard that? I have my truth, you have your truth. Why? Because it comes from within us. It comes from our own thoughts. And, and, and we live in this age of tolerance. And, and Paul, Paul, he was facing some of the same challenges in his day. And he was calling on Titus, he was calling on Timothy to expose it. Because why? Because it was causing great harm to the bride of Christ. Even unintentionally as it may be, these false teachers who had seemed to profess the truth, but they had not lived lives practicing the gospel, they were like these pathogens that began to affect the body and they began to attack it from within. And so Paul tells Titus, expose these false teachers for who they are. Notice in verse 10, notice how Paul calls them to expose them. For there are many, Paul says, it's not just one. Titus, you're going to an island where there are many who are what? Insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. I mean, I love Paul. He, he is not politically correct. He is not going around the thing. He's calling it out, right? He said, hey, Titus, just know what you're up against. And, and could you imagine when this was read in the church? Can you imagine that? And the people within the circumcision party within the, within the church <laughs> hear this letter read? Whew, man, I'm telling you what. Paul says, what about these individuals Here's a couple things. They're insubordinate. They would not obey the message of God's word. 
They're not obeying the messenger of God's servant. Paul calls them insubordinate. They're unruly. Paul says they're empty talkers. They could tell others what to do, but they were not doing it themselves. And here's the great tragedy of it. They were deceiving the church. That's the problem. They were deceiving the church by their empty words. They claimed to be advancing the truth of the gospel, but what they were were peddlers of deception. They had been deceived by Satan, and in so doing, Paul says, notice they were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul sums up, notice in verse 16, notice the bookend of how he summarizes their character in verse 16. He gives these three more descriptions. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They're, they're disobedient, meaning Paul says, they, they, they can't be persuaded. Titus, at this point, as you're going to proclaim the gospel, they have so clearly distorted the gospel by all these other things. Paul says they cannot be persuaded. They will not face the truth. And so because of that, he says they are unfit for any good work. The, the word unfit there is uh, a word from athletics. It's, it's this idea uh, to be disqualified. Any of you track racers, track runners? Any of you ran... Good. Okay. Well, we all enjoy that together. Then. Okay. So um, one of us, a couple of us. So, um, I, you know, I, here's the thing. If you ever ran a race or a marathon, you understand that there are boundaries, there are markers, there are requirements of a path that you must stay within. And, and if you were to run outside of the path and try to cut a corner and to try and get ahead, uh, at the end of the race, you're going to be called what? A cheater, and because you're a cheater, you're what? You're disqualified. What Paul is saying about these leaders is that they are unfit to lead. They've been disqualified from leading. Why? Because of their life. Notice verse 16. That's the crux of the issue. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. These, these leaders in Crete were living a double life. So what is Titus to do? Look down with me in verse 11. Paul says they must be, what's the next word? They must be in verse 11 what? They must be what? Silence. Turn to your neighbor and say they must be silenced. Verse 13, end of 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 9, give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. I mean, think about the challenge that Titus is up against. He's having to appoint leaders in a very divergent culture within a church that has struggled to recognize qualified biblical leadership. And the way that Titus is going to have to do it is he's going to have to silence them. By what? By teaching what accords with sound doctrine. You see, he had a great task, and, and in order to accomplish this task in Crete, Titus couldn't do it alone, and that's why we see the problem was the, what the situation required. But secondly, notice the solution. There was this problem but there's a solution. It's in verses 5 through 9. The solution is what? The appointment of qualified elders. Paul says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Remember, we talked about last week that Titus is not a personal letter as much as it is a public letter because Titus would have read this letter, but this letter from the apostle would have been circulated in those house churches in Crete and this would have been read. You say, why is that important? Because the letter was to Titus, but it was for the church. It's for our church. Because it's in your Bible. <laughs> right? This is for our church. The Holy Spirit of God 
through inspiration, Paul writing this letter to Titus has now been included as scripture for us, right? So this is not just something unrelated, distant, 2,000 years ago history. This is something for you and I. This is something for our congregation. Uh, this, is, this is something that we need. We uh, notice this passage was to inform the whole church. Why? For two reasons. It was to help inform the church so they would know how to appoint and select good, qualified elders. And to know what is required of a person. Or maybe you, aspiring to be an elder. Um, I remember I shared with you a number of last week my call into ministry. And I, I can remember ever since that call coming to this passage way before I even was uh, called to pastor a church here. And I could remember reading that list and aspiring to that office and, and realizing that there's a certain qualification that God would have for those who would be leaders of his church. And so last week we talked about this. How does this process happen? These elders are selected from the church and they're appointed by the leadership of the church. And so here's the thing. The solution was elders Here's the question then, what are the qualifications for those who would be appointed as elders? Five things, five things. Look down at your Bible at verse 6. God in verse 6 through 9 is listing out some non-negotiables. He's talking about some qualifications for those who would serve as pastors, as elders, as overseers. And what is he calling his church to be? Listen to me. He's calling the church to model the Lord Jesus Christ. These things that we're going to look at here this morning are not some second class, second mark qualification that somebody must have that the rest of the body should not have. No, the, 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 the model of the New Testament is that those that are leading in Christ's church would be those who are leading by example. They are following the Lord Jesus Christ and they are emulating His character in their life. And so that as Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, is, is leading His church through these under-shepherds, that together there would be this shared understanding that we're, that we're all after one person and that is that we're all following the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're following the model that is set for us in Jesus. And so keep that in mind as you look at each one of these qualifications. Notice first, here's the first qualification. We find it in verse 6 and 7. It's regarding their public reputation. Their public reputation. The Bible says in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above, what's the next word? Above reproach. Well, what does that mean? The Bible uh, is, is helping us understand that, that this one who's above reproach is really functioning, notice there, as God's steward. They are not the owner of the church. They are a caretaker of it. Man, that's so important today because there's a lot of pastors that somehow think that the church is their church. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is God's church, and those who are stewards of it, they are not managers or, or, or owners of God's church. They are caretakers of it. And so these ones who would serve as caretaker, caretakers of God's flock, notice they must be men who are above reproach. This word is, is, is something that frames the rest of the qualifications. All the other qualifications find their place under this heading. It does not mean perfect. It does not mean flawless. 
but it carries the idea of blameless. It's this idea that an elder or a pastor in God's church should not be called into account. They shouldn't be taken into custody, as it were, on any moral or spiritual charge. I love how one translation puts it, they have unquestioned integrity. That's good. So notice first, these men who serve must have a public reputation. I love uh, Dr. Robert Alderman. How many of you have ever met Dr. Alderman? I love Dr. Alderman as he was talking to me one day about a church calling elders and putting pastors in place. And I love how Dr. Alderman put it to me. He says, Aaron, he says, and the church is going to call a pastor. Don't just ask the congregation to vote on it. He said, ask the whole community to vote on it. Put it in the newspaper that your church is calling so-and-so and see what the community says about the public reputation of the man who would serve as a leader in Christ's church. I thought, man, that's so good because so often when we think about, you know, the church, we only think about it in terms of this. We think about the congregation from this standpoint, but we forget about the lost community that that person will be representing our church too. And so notice, Paul says, notice their public reputation. Secondly, notice the second qualification. They're to be qualified not just in terms of public reputation, but in verse 6, they're to be qualified in terms of their marriage and family. Notice in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, what, what, what? The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You see, why does a man have to manage his family well? Because here's the thing. He's going to be managing the church of God. You know, I thought about it this week as I was just it, it, trying to think about all these qualifications and then how do we re- relate it into our life and think about things. And it's like the thought hit me this week. You know, as, as we're looking for elders in the church and pastors in the church, when, 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 this is one of those verses that is just like, hey, find guys in the church that are a great dad. Because as they're the church, they're going to be managing the church as a father and children. And it's, and it's not just the way he relates to his wife or the way he relates to his children, but, but, but to think about the way that he relates to the church as a whole. And I think some of us, we've, we've seen challenges in this. We've, we've, we've faced elders sometimes that, 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 that maybe were very domineering at home, and so they're domineering with the church, or they're, they're, they're very difficult with their children, and so they're difficult with the church. And, and notice, Paul is just saying, hey, look, if a guy can manage his own family, it should show you what he will be able to do on a larger scale in God's household. He must be the husband of one wife. Now listen, interpretations from this range from no polygamy to no pornography. I mean, that's how broad the spectrum is. Paul here is not talking about that you have to be married because the New Testament and the evidence that we have that more than likely Paul and even Titus himself were not married. So, but the norm is that a pastor will be married. What this is constituting is this. The guy is a one-woman man. Turn to your neighbor and say, one-woman man. One-woman man. He's the husband of one wife. It's, it's underscoring, notice, it's not all of these qualifications. Sometimes we have this. Is he divorced? Is he not? Is he single? Is he not? Is he, does he have this? Does he not? What the Bible's emphasizing here is the guy that serves as a leader in Christ's church is he has this faithful fidelity and purity in his marriage. He's the husband of one wife, and notice his children are believers. They're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
The pastor's kids aren't wild. They're not terrors. They're not disrespectful. It's the picture of the prodigal son here, really. It's the picture of the prodigal son that was disrespectful and wild and reckless. And Titus says, if a guy can't get control in his own house, how is he going to get control to manage the church of God? So he leads his family. He's qualified in public reputation. He's qualified in marriage and family. Thirdly, he's qualified in his character. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Notice verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Let's notice, let's take each one of these words and unpack it. I hope he would give you a fuller picture of what this looks like. Notice the first one. He must not be arrogant. What does that mean? He's not self-willed. He's not inflexible. He's not overbearing. He's not unwilling to consider other viewpoints. He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. Here's the guy that has the short fuse. The guy that goes from, you know, normal to explosive anger in 10 seconds. Probably not a good elder. Right? Hey, pastor, can I just tell you what's going on? Oh, my... You know, let it loose. He must not be quick-tempered. He doesn't have a short fuse. He's not reactionary. He's not easily provoked. The idea is he's somebody that can manage his emotions. He can manage his words. He's not someone who's just going to fly off the handle. Could you imagine one of those guys leading a church staff? Paige, I hope that's not me. She said it's not. He must not be a drunkard. Someone who's not an excessive drinker. He's not a drunk. A guy who understands the addictive qualities of alcohol. And he demonstrates wisdom in consuming it. He's not refusing to drink something in a quantity that would cause him to lose his mental awareness and his sober judgment. That's the picture here. He must not be violent. He's not a bully. He's not domineering. He's not a fist fighter. Why? Would you want the dad like that? And as a pastor, as he leads in the church of God, he does so as kind of the spiritual father and and the picture of leadership. I mean, we've talked about this before, not just as pastors, but deacons and those who serve in leadership here. It's it's, it's this picture that these these guys are are not quick-tempered. They're they're, they're somebody that you can come to. They're problem solvers. They're not somebody that's going to blow up in your face. Notice, They're not a drunkard. They're not violent. He must not be greedy for gain. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that a laborer deserves his wages? Didn't Paul say, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Yes, all of that is true. What, what, What Paul is telling Titus here is that the admonition is somebody who pursues wealth by means of dishonest gain. An elder must be upstanding and honest in his financial integrity. I, I, I think you see this in other places around the world. Maybe then you see it more here in the United States. But it's the whole prosperity gospel movement. And in so many of those places, it's not just fueling the financial well-being of the church. It's fueling the financial pockets 
of those who are leading in that ministry. Paul says, hey, Titus, you're not a peddler of the word of God. Certainly those who teach the word of God are worthy of their wages. He says, but it's not something for dishonest gain. You don't go into the ministry for money. Notice, you must have this upstanding character. This is who an elder's character should not be. But what should it look like? Notice at the end of verse 7, the Bible says that he, verse 8, but hospitable. This is somebody who opens their life and their home to people. Who seeks the well-being of others. A lover of good. Somebody who pursues good things and good people. Somebody who pursues things that are virtuous. A self-controlled individual, somebody that can control their tongue, somebody that you can trust, somebody that's not going to be loose with their words. The idea is they're sensible and prudent. They're hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. Notice, upright. The idea here is that they're just and equitable. They have integrity and honesty in dealing with people. He's holy. Now, at first we might think he's holy in the sense of like God is holy, like other distinct. Yes, the Bible says, be holy for I am holy. Certainly, that is what the church as Jesus Christ is all called to be. But the idea here is is really more of a guy's devotion. He has clean hands and a pure heart and a right relationship between him and God. And notice he's a man who has uh, who is devout. He has He's showing a genuine love and obedience to God in every area of his life. He's he's someone who is disciplined. Notice, he's self-controlled and shows self-retraint. I mean, you you, you look at this list and you begin to form this picture. How how many of you are beginning to get a picture in your eye about the qualification of an elder? It's, It's these pictures of what Paul so desperately sees that Crete is in need of. So notice, they're qualified in public reputation. They're qualified in marriage and family. They're qualified in their character. Finally, notice the last one, number four. I think I said five, but it's four. They're qualified in terms of their devotion and the communication of God's word. Notice verse nine. Notice how, how, a ta- how an elder is to do this. Verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as was taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. You see, The last qualification is the guy must have a devotion to the Word of God and the ability to communicate it. He's not just a good communicator. He's somebody who's a good learner. He's somebody who is learning the Word of God for himself so that as he is able to pass it on to others, he's a good teacher. You know, as I studied this again this week, it just reminded me of the thing that as a pastor and those who serve as elders in the church of Jesus Christ, God cares far more about who they are than what they do. I mean, out of all these things, there's just one thing to do. (laughs) He has to be a good teacher. And if he's not a good teacher, no matter how qualified a guy is, he's not an elder. But notice, he's to be all these things. Do you know why? Because it's by a person's life and their testimony that we're impacted far more than what a person does. Who we are, can I say this to you this morning? Who you are is far more important than what you do. Do you believe that? 100 years from now, well, I shouldn't say that, 10 years from now, nobody's going to look back and remember all the things you did. But they're going to remember who you were. 
I mean, who you are is just going to come right to the surface. Because that's what impacts people. And Paul, he's just telling Titus, hey, Titus, these churches in Crete need to be straightened out. They need qualified leaders. They they, they need men who are going to lead by an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men who are not seeking selfish gain, but they're seeking the well-being of the church. Let me end by giving you this quote that I found so helpful by John MacArthur. Listen as I read. God does not call all elders to be entrepreneurs, men who begin ministries and build them. Nor does he call elders to be producers, men who accomplish great amount of work in the church, although those are worthy things. Nor does he call them to be managers, adapt at mobilizing in the Lord's service, although that too is a worthy thing. The Lord does, however, call all elders to be godly leaders, men who by their exemplary lives, as well as their sound teaching and preaching, set a pattern of virtue and devotion for the Lord, for other believers to follow. Here's the thing. These qualifications we looked at this morning, these are not second tier, second class qualifications. Sadly, sometimes this is how it's presented in some churches is that, you know, if a guy's going to aspire to have the office of a pastor or an elder, it's as if somehow he reached second tier to get there. All the qualifications we read this morning are things pertaining to our testimony, our charity, our integrity. Something that God would have each one of us to be an example in. So before we point a finger, don't forget we got three more coming right back at us. Here's the issue. Why is this important? Because two reasons. If there are unqualified leaders in a church, here's what's going to happen. It's going to weaken the church. And it's going to harm the testimony of it. I mean, doesn't that happen with any person in the body of Christ, though? Something happens and weakens the church. It harms the testimony. But certainly, those who serve in leadership of Christ's church should be exemplary in their public reputation, their marriage and family, their character, and their handling, their devotion to the Word of God. Why? Because it matters. Because the health of this church matters. Can I just tell you, I, I, I want Catawba Valley Baptist to be a healthy place. You know, we're in the search of a pastoral search right now, and I'm sure you're going to hear an update about it in the business meeting to follow in a minute. But I just want to let you know this, that in this whole process as we are searching, God has given me such peace in this to know that I don't have to gun for someone to be here or not to be here. I'm going to trust the leadership of God's Spirit through the selection of this church to bring the right qualified candidate that they believe and for the church to call them in a vote. And, and, and if that happens, then that is God's will for our church. And if that doesn't happen, then that's also God's will for our church. Just, just, just rest in the grace of God and, and trust that as a church, we're going to be serious about these things. And ultimately, what we should want is what God wants for us. I believe that God will make that clear. 
I believe we're not going to have to wonder. I think we're going to be clear. But will we trust the Lord in it? Will we trust the Lord in it? Because here's the thing. There's a lot at stake. There's the strength and the health of our church and the testimony of it. And I say this to you this morning as an elder. <laughs> I told Jessica this week, I said, man, I don't, I don't even know after looking at all this stuff if I am. You know, like you just, you just look at your life and you see shortcomings in your life, probably things that I see that other people don't see. And it's just like, Lord, Lord, Help us all. Help us all be the kind of people that model the Lord Jesus Christ to one another. Let's give grace where grace is needed. Let's endure where endurance is needed. Let's forbear where forbearance is needed. But let's not get our eyes on all these other things. Let's get our eyes centered on Jesus. Let's get our eyes centered on His leadership Let's get our eyes centered on the Spirit moving and leading and guiding us. And let's certainly not lose sight of that. Too much is at stake. Too much is at stake. Well, this morning, we've been challenged by the Word. I pray that we all will be well informed on what good elders are, how to select them, how they're brought, but we would all keep our eyes centered on Jesus. Here's the thing. The good shepherd of his church is never going to lead the church in a wrong way. Trust that. Trust that. There's been moments in my life where some, some of you may be there in a moment that seems dark and you're not really sure where to go. Anybody ever been there? You've been walking in life and you're just like not really sure? I, I, I've had more of those moments than I care to admit. But you know what the Lord showed me a number of years ago and it, I've just held on to it. As the sheep, I don't have to know where we're going. But I better keep my eyes, my heart, my attitude centered on following Him. Because if I'm not following Him, then I'm lost. But if I'm as close to the shepherd as I can be, that's a safe place to be. That's, that's one of those places where you can just, it's going to be okay. You have no clue what's around the corner. And you're hearing sounds of things out in the distance that sure make you nervous. But you say, it's okay, because the shepherd's here. And he loves me. And he's for me. And he's going to lead me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's committed to the church. The Bible says the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Jesus is advancing His church. Will we be sensitive, sensitive enough to the leadership of the Holy Spirit to be there with Him? That's Father, we thank You. Thank You. That Lord, You love us. Lord, we're thankful that you've put within the church ways for us to be cared for, to be led, to be encouraged. Lord, I thank you just for the tremendous joy of, of pastoring here. Thank you, Lord, for the love of this church. Lord, you understand, Lord, better than we do where we're at, what we need. And Lord, this morning, I pray that, that we all in this room this morning, 
Lord, would be able to look at these qualifications and, and, and Lord, be able to judge rightly, be able to uh, weigh uh, rightly, Lord, be able to help this church to be uh, cared for rightly. Lord, we have all a desire, I pray, Lord, to see your church be furthered. But Father, help us this morning just to relax into your grace. Help us, Lord, just to relax into the leading of your spirit, to trust Lord, that you will never lead us in a wrong path. Lord, thank you for the joy of of your leading. Thank you, Lord, as we can look back over the last number of years and just pinpoint and say, Lord, we would have never done that. Lord, that property we talked about this morning, we would have never done that apart from your leading. Lord, so we just thank you and and we, we pray that this morning, God, you would search each of our hearts. I understand, Lord, not all of us are aspiring to be an elder or, or qual- calling one, but, but Lord, these are character qualities that you want in our life. Because this is what was modeled in the heart of Jesus. And I wonder, Lord, do we have it? Are we striving after it? Pray you'd all help us, Lord, just to see, Lord, something more this morning that maybe we hadn't seen before. And, and by your grace, Lord, take a step and growing in that area of our character. For Jesus' sake, Lord, we love you and thank you and ask it in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, amen. Would you stand? Altars open this morning. You need to respond to how God's leading you. I invite you to come and pray. As Jessica plays this morning, you just come on down, kneel here at the front, get alone with God and have the Lord search your heart. Your burden for our church, your burden for where we are, you're burdened for, for what's ahead. I pray you'd come and pray this morning. But seek the Lord as a church. I just invite you to respond as God leads this morning on your heart. You come, kneel and pray for what Lord's burdening you with this morning.